Okay, my friends, we are ready to rock and roll. Yeah, a little higher. Thank you for joining Chumash Climaxes. Today we are going to take a deep look at the final verse of Parsha Shemot, the first Parsha of the second book of the Torah. And it's about a question of faith or even a crisis of faith. How do you deal with how do you deal with those questions? And what happens when we have a crisis? Today's class is generously sponsored by Betty Fluss, honoring her husband, her late husband's yard site, David Ben Shol, David Fluss, his neshama should have an aliyah, and he should derive pleasure from the Torah that we are studying together, for we are told that when Torah is studied here, in this terrestrial reality, it brings joy to neshamot, who participate with us from Ganeidim. So with no further ado, we will now open a new book, a new book that begins with the story of exile. The exile of the Jewish people, a displacement, which is quickly followed by persecution, profound discomfort, and a lot of pain, agony, and terrible suffering. In the midst of all of this, in the most horrific of times, a baby is born. Something's very unusual about the circumstances of this baby's birth. Light fills the room. His mother, who is a very, very holy and righteous woman, has a premonition, a sense that incredible things are in the future, are portended for this little baby. And so they try to save this baby. But the Egyptian Gestapo is looking to snuff out the lives of every Jewish child and eventually every child at some point. And Moshe Rabbeinu's sister places him in a wicker basket, kind of like the purloin letter theory, put, them, put him in the place where they wouldn't look for him <laughs> because they were planning to throw the babies into the Nile. And Miriam has a very good plan. She's on the shore, surrounds the little basket with bulrushes, not realizing that from her vantage point, Moses is well concealed and camouflaged. From the other side, however, he's entirely exposed. An incredible stroke of divine design, divine providence. The daughter of the Pharaoh is deeply ashamed of her father's brutal and murderous ways. And she decides to immerse in the Nile to try to rinse off the spiritual filth that she's surrounded by. But those who help her are, are not really that righteous. To make a long story short, Batya saves the life of Moshe, the daughter of the Pharaoh. It's like the daughter of Hitler, Yomach saving the baby who will be the savior of the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu grows up. He exhibits a very sensitive and caring side to his persona. He's worried. He feels the pain of others. 
He eliminates a person who is tormenting one of the Hebrew slaves and in the end has to flee himself. There's a lot of time that's glossed over. We don't hear about it. Decades go by. Next we hear about Moshe. He's a big boy. He's already in an advanced age. He hasn't never married yet. And he sees young women being tormented. And once again, Moshe Rabbeinu feels their pain, steps in to save them, and that leads him to marry the daughter of the erstwhile high priest of Midian. And Moshe Rabbeinu becomes a shepherd. After having been a general in the army, growing up in a palace, becoming a general in the army, eventually becoming the king of Cush, which is probably Eritrea of today. Moshe Rabbeinu is now a shepherd, engaged in solitude and contemplation, spirituality and deep thought. Moshe Rabbeinu is still fully aware of his charges. And when one lost sheep disappears, Moshe Rabbeinu goes seeking for that little lamb. And that's where he, proverbially speaking, meets God in a burning bush that isn't being consumed. Moshe Rabbeinu is spoken to. Moshe Rabbeinu is not keen about this mission that God has for him. He argues with God. He remonstrates. He pleads. He doesn't want to go. But in the end, Moshe Rabbeinu is now heading down to Mitzrayim. Zipporah, his wife, comes along with him. There's a little mishap on the way. Moshe Rabbeinu isn't on top of his game in the most meticulous fashion where there's a baby that was born that should have been circumcised. Anyway, Moshe Rabbeinu ends up sending Zipporah home. He says, we have enough Jews that are enslaved, says Aaron. We don't need more to be suffering. And Moses comes and he shows the Jewish people the signs that God had told him and he gives them this message, I am your redeemer. And they go and they ask Sarah, the daughter of Usher, who we mentioned in last week's class, is he really the guy? And she says, what's he saying? She says, pocket you've got, yep. She says, that's the words. He's got the right code. And Moses goes to the Pharaoh and demands from the Pharaoh, send my people forth and they will serve me. And the Pharaoh says, send who? Where? And the next thing we know, he ratchets up the pressure. No longer will they be given raw materials, and yet the same amount of bricks will have to be met. And those who can't, and nobody could, because it was already a near impossible task to produce the amount of bricks when they were getting the raw materials. Now that they had to fan across the countryside to find raw materials and then still produce the bricks, it was essentially impossible. Well, says the Pharaoh, in that case, anybody who does not fill the quota will have to have the quota of bricks filled with his own children. And so babies are what you would call immured. Immured means boxed into a wall. It usually is understood euphemistically, but this was quite literal, like the old French that the word immured comes from in the 14th century, framed in a wall. These babies were literally cemented into walls to replace the missing bricks. The horrors of live babies cemented into walls where they wailed in pain, 
until they died of starvation is not something that really requires much elucidation. It's almost too frightening, too painful to think of. Moshe Rabbeinu sees not only have things not gotten better, but in fact they've gotten much worse. And when some of the Hebrews meet Moses, they attack him in a very harsh way. Moshe Rabbeinu is heartbroken, totally ripped up. And that brings us to the very conclusion, the climax of Parshat Shmos. In the verses that we read in Shulfer Maftir, by Yashav Moshe, Moshe, after having been told by these Hebrews, may God judge you for the pain, for the misery, for the horrors that you've inflicted upon us, for proverbially handing a sword to the Pharaoh with which to further cut and persecute us. Moshe Rabbeinu, by Yoshev, Moshe El Hashem, Moshe returns to God and he says, Lama hare oisa la'omazeh. Very strong words. He demands to know why God has mistreated his people. He says things have gotten so bad now. They're cementing live babies into walls. Why did you send me? We're now in the fifth chapter of the book of Exodus. Verse 23. From the day I came to the Pharaoh to speak in your name, you have made things so much worse for your people, or this people. And yet, you have not saved or delivered your people. So that's the question, the challenge. Moshe Rabbeinu complaining to the Almighty. Chapter 6 opens in the last verse of Parshat Shemot. And I've talked about this many times in, the, in my classes. The, the, the Parshiot are Halacha Lamosha Misinai. The way we divide up the Torah goes back to, well, the author of the Torah itself, Hashem, God, as dictated through Moses. The chapters in the Bible are not of a Jewish source and don't come from God or even people with higher intuition. In fact, they come from people who didn't understand the Chumash properly at all, for the Bible was first printed by Gutenberg in Latin, not in Hebrew. And the monks divided the Bible as they understood it. And oftentimes what seems to be the beginning and an end of a story is actually not the way Hashem ordains it to be in His Torah, which means that you necessarily can't understand the story in its proper way. Hence, sadly, so many misled individuals not properly understanding the message of Hashem's Holy Torah because Hashem's Holy Torah comes in a form of parshiot first and sedrot or paragraphs and sentences because if you take something out of context 
or you don't read it right, or you don't know where to put punctuation, like a period or a comma, or where a paragraph begins or ends, or where a parsha begins or ends, can you really understand the message that's being conveyed? No, the answer is you, you can't understand it, but you can't understand it properly because you have it out of syntax. You have it out of whack. You, had it, you don't have it in its proper frame. So we're just going to use the numbers for reference purposes only, which is why, incidentally, we have these numbers in our Chumash. Once the Bible had been printed and once they had used these numbers, they imposed them over the first prints of the Hebrew Bible, of the Chumash, and at that point, people had already begun to reference verses with chapter and verse, and now if they would change that, everything would be thrown into disarray. So they really have been maintained for reference purposes only, not meaning. So for reference purposes, the first verse of the sixth chapter of Exodus, which is the last verse, and this is not for reference, but for content and understanding, the last verse of Parsha Shemot is God's response to Moshe. Moshe has a question of faith. You could even say Moshe Rabbeinu is experiencing, on Moshe Rabbeinu's level, even a crisis of faith. And God now responds to Moshe Rabbeinu. And I'm going to pose it that it's really important for us to understand what Moses asked, and even more so what God answered. Because if God gave Moses instructions, if he told Moshe Rabbeinu how to deal with a question or crisis of faith, don't you think that we should be borrowing that page and incorporating it into our own faith playbooks? When we have a question of faith, when we suffer a crisis of our faith, how should we be responding? What's the right approach? This is extremely relevant. It's maybe even more so relevant during this pandemic period when so many people are suffering from illness and so many more are suffering from loneliness, anxiety, inability to put food on the table or inability to put people's lives together. And there's a lot of suffering. And when there's suffering, people who want to believe in a good and benevolent God invariably will be faced with what we could only call a crisis of faith. What's the right approach? One of the most famous books, one of the most famous books of the 20th century in the Jewish world is a book written by a conservative faith leader, conservative as in the conservative movement, a leader in the conservative movement, a non-halachic expression of religiosity by Jews. And he queries or addresses why do bad things happen to good people. And Harold Kushner's work has become a Bible for crisis of faith for so many people. In fact, very early on in my career, if you want to call it that, or my life, my, uh, my shlichus life, people would reference this book so often. People would speak of its message so copiously, I felt I had no choice but to read the book myself. 
and to find out what exactly he says there. And frankly, may Hashem forgive him? I was horrified. Seriously horrified. Here's a man who's struggling with faith, but he's creating his own answers. Instead of looking at the Torah and saying, okay, how do we deal with human suffering? How should we contend with a crisis of faith? He comes to his own conclusions. He desperately wants to believe that God is good, God is kind, God is compassionate, and has difficulty reconciling that with the realities at hand. And he suffered personally in his own life with a child who was very ill. And he found a solution. He found a solution enabling him to still love God and to still believe that God is good by creating a fake God who is powerless. God feels for you, he said. He just can't do anything about it. God is in pain also. Don't be angry at God. Feel bad for him. It's unfortunate. He can't control what he created. Now, I'm being somewhat sarcastic in summing up the message of his book, but stupid or not, and I did read what he wrote, and that's essentially the upshot. My dear friends, with all due or perhaps an undue respect, that is kfira, that is heresy. It is absolute heresy to say that God can't do something. It is absolute heresy from a Torah perspective to believe in a force or a power that is outside or beyond the purview of God. Moshe Rabbeinu says it openly multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy where he says, You have been made to know, you have seen God reveal to you that ain od milvado. There is nothing, nothing other than God. There is no force, there is no power. Incidentally, the very notion that there is so much suffering, so much sadness, so much pain and anguish in God's world led various faith systems to make the mistake of assuming that there had to be multiple kingdoms. So it's monotheism, kind of. There really is only one God, but there are other forces that also hold sway or power. In the end, it doesn't challenge their monotheism, they would claim, because God's going to win the war in the end. But he's challenged, and he's battling, and there is a dominion of evil, horrible, terrible stuff, but God's fighting, and don't worry about it. He will win. Just didn't win yet. So whether you call that the kingdom of Satan or whatever else you might ascribe to it, for Jewish people, that is heresy. Because that acknowledges that there are other powers. And for us, our declaration of faith is Shema Yisrael, here, which means listen and understand Israel. Hashem Elokeinu, the Lord God, the transcendent great God is Elokeinu, is the God that gives us vitality, life, power, and wherewithal. Hashem Echad, there is only one God. No two gods, three gods, ten gods, Satan's, Godheads, mothers, sisters, brothers, cousins, children, competition. It doesn't work from a Jewish perspective. None of that is acceptable. One God, one God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and beyond what we can fathom. So how do we deal with the crisis of faith? How do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with things when, when it doesn't add up and it seems unjust? 
and unfair? That's a good question. How did Moshe Rabbeinu deal with it? And how did God respond to him? Now, before we begin to seriously study this verse, a very, very important verse for us to study, because here is God answering your question. You asked a good question. How do we deal with it? How should we deal with it? Where in the Torah does God say, here's how to deal with a crisis of faith? I know where God says, thou shalt believe in God. I am the Lord your God. I know where God says, you shall not believe in any other forces or powers. You're not allowed to ascribe divinity or ascribe any kind of power wherewithal to any other force. There is no other force. Everything is created by God, including the worst things, the ugliest things, the most horrible things are also created by benevolent good God. How so? Excellent question. But we're not going to talk about the theology of how evil can exist within the reality of divinity or how it can come from divinity. We're not talking about that now. That's an excellent question for a different day. Our question will focus not on the theology of evil, but rather the emotional response. How should we react when we are in pain? If you have a crisis of faith, how should you react? What's appropriate? And what isn't? You know, the notion that anything goes doesn't really go when it comes to Yiddishkeit. Early on in this pandemic, somebody posed a question. I think it was on Facebook. And the question they posed was, can I use Zoom for the Seder this year? Or, or you know, would, would, it, would, would it be permitted? And, and there were various misnomers out there and I responded with the halachic truth so some individual responds to the thread and says don't listen to him it's COVID you do whatever works for you now and I said very respectfully you can do as you please but your frustration or it's COVID doesn't mean you have a blanket to do as you please. It's not good. Violating the halacha is not good. I'm sorry. Even if you're lonely at the Seder, violating the halacha is not good. You violate Shabbat and Yom Tov to save a life. That's the halacha. It's not good. Everything doesn't go. You may be frustrated. I am. You may be in pain. Thank God I'm not. I should try to empathize. I do. It's not easy. Feel other people's pain. Not to be callous, not to be indifferent, not to be dismissive. We shouldn't be any of those things. A key component of us being a proper Yid is to have a sensitivity towards the feelings of others, to be empathetic to the needs of others. But that does not allow us to do as we please insofar as our Yiddishkeit is concerned. We still have to live within a frame or system known as Torah Judaism. So people have asked me, where does God actually tell us what to do when we're in a crisis of faith? And the answer is in the last verse of Parshat Shemot. 
If you're just joining us, I hope you'll stay. If you've been with us for a while, please don't leave. This is important. It's important for us to deal with a crisis of faith the way Hashem tells us to. It's important for us to know this. So let's study together. What exactly does God say to Moshe? Vayomer Hashem Moshe. God responds to Moshe as he cries out in pain and says, Why did you send me? Things have gotten so much worse. God responds, Ata, Tire, now you will see. You will see what I do to the Pharaoh. For with a mighty hand, he will forcibly send them forth, driving them from his land. Let me repeat that. Moshe Rabbeinu said, Why did you send me? Why were you bad? Why have you mistreated your people? Why are babies being plastered or cemented into walls where they will cry out in pain until they die? And why do mothers and fathers have to see their children snatched from their hands and plastered into walls to die? My being sent has caused this. Why'd you send me? Why is this happening? And God's compassionate response, oh, you'll see. You'll see what I do to the Pharaoh. I'm, gonna, I'm going to send with a mighty hand, send forth my mighty hand. And he, he the Pharaoh, he's going to be forced because my strong hand will send them forth and he will drive them from his land. What exactly is the answer? I know what the question is. It's not hard to understand the question. It's not hard to feel Moshe Rabbeinu's frustration and pain and hurt. And Moshe says, I don't understand why you did this. I don't understand why people are suffering. I don't understand why people are being made to experience such anguish. I don't understand it. I don't understand why you sent me to inflict that pain. I don't understand it. And the answer is, you'll see. You'll see what I do to Pharaoh. Dear God, could you please answer the question? That's what we get in the Torah. And then the next parsha begins with God recounting history, Jewish history. I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't ask me my name. You did. They accepted my ways, you didn't accept. But that's a separate Torah portion. I know it sounds like a continuation. And Rashi himself says that Parshat Va'era begins as a response to the questions of Moshe Rabbeinu found at the end of Parshat Shemot. However, Hashem in his Torah gives us one verse separate from the others. God's immediate response. And then we get a sermon. I showed myself. One second. This is the immediate response. Moshe is crying out in pain. He's pleading with God. Please explain to me why people are suffering. What's God's answer? You'll see. You'll see. It's going to be good. It's going to be fantastic. 
My mighty hand will crush the Pharaoh. He'll force the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt. So why are people suffering? So why did things get worse again? In the writings of our sages, this verse is framed in three different locations, three different ways. I would say to you that, well, you could say it's three different ways. The first is the Sifri, that's the Medrash Halacha. I guess you would you'd say the genre of the Mishnah. As it was arranged according to the verses of the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. The Medrash Halacha on Bamidbar and Devarim is called Sifri. On Leviticus, Vayikra, it's called Safra. On Bereshit and Shemot, it's called Mechilta. Different redactors. The Sifri in Parshat Bahalotcha. Towards the end of the Torah portion, we read of Miriam, the sister of Moshe Rabbeinu, who saves Moshe Rabbeinu's life in this week's Torah portion. The girl who saves the lives of thousands of Jewish children. The girl who stands up to her father and mother who have made a choice to separate and get divorced and demands they remarry because she has prophetic intuition about a savior being born from the union of Amram and Yocheved. And there's a lot to say about all this, but Miriam is a very, very special person. One of the most righteous human beings ever to walk the face of planet Earth. in some ways, equal almost to Moshe Rabbeinu. It is she who leads the women of Israel in the song of praise, just as Moses did for the men. It is in her merit that hydration is provided for the millions of Jewish people who wandered through the desert for 40 years. And yet, when Miriam miscalculates and speaks inappropriately about Moshe Rabbeinu, it's not acceptable. How much more so when people like you and I miscalculate and speak badly of others? How much more so when it's not even a miscalculation? So we learn a lesson from this one big mistake that Miriam made. Miriam is stricken with what's called tzorat, a paranormal, not connected to contagium or physical illness condition called sarat, mistranslated as leprosy, and Miriam is sent outside the camp of the Jewish people. And Moshe Rabbeinu prays on her behalf. He prays very succinctly, very briefly. He doesn't want people to say, ah, to his sister he prays. For us, you know. So Moshe Rabbeinu puts this really high-powered prayer together, short but incredibly sharp. So the Sifri says on this verse, verse very close to the end of the Parsha, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah Omer. Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah said on this verse, Ba'arba Mikomot. There are four places in the Torah where Bikesh, Moshe, where Moshe Rabbeinu made a request 
He asked God something. And God answered. Meaning, not every question was answered. But there were four times where Moshe Rabbeinu's questions were addressed. And the first time is, the Jewish people won't listen to me. They didn't listen to me. He said, Hashem, Hashiveni, answer me. Are you going to make this happen or not? Are you actually going to redeem the Jewish people or am I playing a game here? Is this a maybe? So the Sifri kind of conflates multiple questions that Moshe Rabbeinu posed to God. And he says that essentially the Sifri maintains these questions were all comprised of similar nature. All woven from the same fabric. And the question was, Will the Jewish people actually go out of Galut? Is this, is this really going to happen? Until HaKadosh Baruch Hu answered. And he answers at the end of Parshat Shemot. He says, So the way the Sifri frames the question, although it sounds like a crisis of faith, and although it sounds like deep frustration, it sounds like pain, what's really happening here is Moshe Rabbeinu demanding an answer, just tell me what's going to happen. Is this for real? Are you actually going to take the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God's response is yes. Now. Now you'll see yes. So from the first Sifri's perspective, the question is almost a, a broad question. It's, a, it's an expression of pain and frustration, but it goes into the bigger question is, what's the end game? What is going to happen? And God says, it's going to happen. I'm taking the children of Israel out of Egypt. This is one response that I, I found in the writings of our sages. It's a very interesting response because it almost it modifies the question. The question is not what it seems to be. It's almost as if the question is not really a crisis of faith, but just a general question. It's Moses posing a question. It's not something that we can necessarily learn from. Moses poses a question. Moses gets an answer. Okay. Another approach is what I found in the Medrash Lekach Tov. Medrash Lekach Tov frames this dialogue as such. Ata now, Tira, you'll see. You'll see Gdulascha b'Mitzrayim. You're worried about being disrespected. You're worried about being disparaged, yelled at. What'd you come for? Oh, you'll see. Your reputation will wax. As it says, Gam ha'ish Moshe Godal ma'id. Moshe Rabbeinu's reputation magnified. He was, you'll forgive the euphemism, looked at as if he walked on water. He was like, they beheld him with the greatest of dignity and respect. So that there would be a major broadcast that would be known to all. With a mighty hand, the Jewish people would be taken out. They would be driven from the land of Mitzrayim. What is going on in this dialogue? What was the question? What's the answer? What's the need for atatira? What's God saying? Says the Medrash Lekach Toiv Moshal, 
lesar. Let's metaphorize. Because metaphors, they help us understand things which are outside of our realm. So when they're outside of our orbit or realm or familiarity, you bring it into your orbit, you bring it into your realm, you make it familiar, something you can relate to, and then what essentially you're getting is the same message framed in a way you can appreciate. So the marshal is a sar. He found his son had been abducted by a group of thugs. And the thugs were enslaving the prince. So this regent, magistrate, a member of nobility, he said, If I say, what are you doing to my son? Hands off. Pause off the prince. Disappear as fast as you can before I decide to do something. That's not a display of power. That's not a display of authority. It's not an act of dignity to my son. My son was abused, mistreated, and now the tormentors and abusers simply pick up and leave. That wouldn't work. I will torture them. They will get just desserts. So that they will know what they did to my son. So that everybody will know the might of the king. So I guess the Tsar, the officer here, the nobleman is Meshir Rabbeinu, and the king is God. How much more so? I've already promised Avram that in the Brit Ben Habsarim, in that very covenant where God foretold that there would be this exile, He also said that the nation that will enslave your children, I will judge. You'll see. So, in the way the Medrash Seichel Tov frames it, why does Moshe Rabbeinu here, Atatira, now you will see. Whereas the Rabbeinu Meyuchas, Rabbeinu Meyuchas ben Elio, 12th century sage, he says that Atatira has to be understood as from here onward. You ask questions, but that was from here onward, you're going to see. You're going to see. Now, you, now it's going to be public. So you ask why the Jewish people are suffering. He doesn't really answer why the Jewish people are suffering. He says, I want you to know, from now onward, things are going to be great. So in both of these instances, our sages do not really seem to address the dialogue here. They, they, they offer kind of a response. The response to Moshe Rabbeinu is not necessarily instructive for our crisis of faith. However, if we take a look in the Gemara, in Mesechet Sanhedrin, on page 111, side 8, the Gemara there talks about various narratives that are related to Kriyas Yamsuf. So the Gemara tells us that you must know, with regard to the Egyptian exile, that there was a, an encounter that happened in the times of the Talmud in which an Egyptian ratified the very ideas and ideals that we read about in the Torah. There is a scroll 
that's found, I think, in Oxford University called the Scroll of Ipatoire, which is a scroll of a priest of the time written on papyrus, and it essentially details circumstances that seem awfully reminiscent of what we call the Ten Plagues. Only historians reject its relevance because they decided that that's not the time of the proverbial exodus, except that they're wrong because the Torah tells us exactly when it was, and if we follow the Torah's perspective, the Yetzirah Mitzrayim was 3,332 years ago. It's exactly when the scroll of Ipatar was presumably authored. At any rate, the Gemara says, Tanya, Omer Rabbi Lozer, Rabbi Yoisi. We learned in Abraisa, Rabbi Lozer, Rabbi Yoisi, a sage from the genre of the Mishnah, said, Pam achat nichnastila Alexandria shel Mitzrayim. I once entered Alexandria of Egypt. Alexandria is a city that was named to honor Alexander the Great after the Potolemic Empire fractured and broke off from the Seleucid Empire and they created their own North African entity. Both men were vying over the Middle East. But at any rate, the city of Alexandria, from a Midrashic perspective, is an ancient one and predates Alexander the Greek Empire by many, many centuries. But the, the city is called Alexandria at the time, and it is a part of Eretz Mitzrayim, the biblical Egypt. So Rabbi Lazar Rabbi Yossi enters into Alexandria Shal Mitzrayim, and he says, Matsati Zaken Echad, I found an old local, an old Egyptian. Va'omar Li and the Egyptians said to me, Boy, come, va'ar eko, and I will show you ma'asu avotai avotecha, what my ancestors did to your ancestors. And he goes on to say, now what's he going to show you? What does that mean? So presumably the Mepharshim say, it must be he was going to show him some kind of scroll, some kind of historical record from that time. Mehem tovu bayam. Some of your people were drowned in the sea. Mehem harogu bechorev. Some were massacred by the sword. And mehem ma'achu or miachu bibinyan. Some were in fact what we called immured into buildings. The Gemara says, and you should know, it was on the last of the things, the immuration of babies into buildings, Nanash Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moshe Rabbeinu was punished. Moshe Rabbeinu was punished because of babies cemented into walls. What does that mean? Shanemar, as it is written, and this is the verse we just read before, and since I'd come to the Pharaoh to speak in your name, you have so badly treated this nation. So Moshe Rabbeinu is complaining. He's questioning God's justice. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe, you are questioning my justice. You saw babies stuffed or cemented and plastered live into a wall. And you are upset about their suffering. And for this you question. Huh. Woe is to that which is lost 
but not forgotten. How many times or many times did I reveal myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I revealed myself to them and they did not second guess or question my ways. They never said to me, what is your name? As Moshe Rabbeinu asked at the burning bush. I said to Avram, Go and walk in the land. Go in its length and its breadth. And Avram Avinu was supposed to walk in the land in order to acquire the land that he was going to give to Avram's nation. And then he didn't want a whole land. He wanted a plot. That's all he wanted. Because the only kind of land, real estate, you can't lease or rent is a burial plot. Burial plot's permanent. And when he wanted a place to bury Sarah, Bikesh Mokim Likbert as Sarah, he sought a place to bury Sarah. He paid an astronomical amount of money, 400 silver ducats of the day. A crazy amount of money for a plot. So he should have said, hey, God, you promised me A, B, and C, and D. A whole land you promised me and told me to walk around and acquire it. And now I can't even get a plot without paying a million bucks for it? you got to be kidding. This doesn't make any sense. He did not question my ways. I said to Isaac, live in this land. I will be with you. And, and what else did God say to Isaac when he said, Live in this land and I will be with you. And I will bless you. And then, what's the very next thing that happens? Bikshu, avod of mayim lishtes, his own servants sought a little water for hydration. And they couldn't find. Until they had to make a literally a battle, a fight over the well they had dug. The shepherds of Gerar quarreled with the shepherds of Yitzchak. Lamer saying, Lonu hamoyim. Yitzchak dug, digs the well and they claim paternity. And nonetheless, Yitzchak does not say, I don't understand God. You said you'll be with me. You said you're going to bless me. You told me to stay in this land. I dug a well in this land and now they claim an ownership. He didn't question my ways. I said to Jacob, the land upon which you lie, I will give you, I did not mean the space of a burial plot, but as Rashi tells us, God proverbially folded the entirety of the land over that little spot in his dream vision. And then, after he promises him that the whole land will be his, Yaakov finally returns Esau finally peels off and leaves him alone, and he wants to pitch a tent. He just wants to settle down in the land that's supposed to all be his. He didn't have that ability until he purchased a tiny plot of land for a huge amount of money from the ruler of the city of Shechem, whose name was Shechem. Sorry, whose name was Chamor. He didn't, he didn't second-guess me, Yaakov. They didn't say, what's your name? And you, you said, why did what's name? And Achshav, now you're saying, you accuse me now of not saving the nation? 
Well, maybe he's getting killed, but yeah. Yeah, you accuse me of that. Oh, ata, tire, you will see what I do to the Pharaoh. However, you'll see what happens now. You will not see the battle of 31 kings. Okay, so what happened here? <laughs> we got introduced to a story where an old man says, I want to show you a scroll. Maybe it's something like the scroll of Ipatoire. I mean, Marsha tells us it was a scroll. So, and, and then the Gemara says, oh, that story, the immuration of baby story. Let me tell you a little, another little story. This was the thing that really did Moses in. Because, of course, we know Moshe Rabbeinu does not enter the land of Israel. Why not? Ah, you thought it was because of something he did later, from this moment and onward, because he dared question God. That's why God said, no more. You'll get to see what happens to the Pharaoh. You will not get to see what happens subsequently to the 31 kings. So this is a very famous question because it seems like God has already pre-planned everything. So why do we say later that Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to go in the land of Israel and he couldn't go into the land of Israel? Something's not adding up. So one of the explanations that's brought down, the Be'er Shevan, the Gemara says this, and it's also the Sifse Chachamim, a commentary on Rashi, over here says, he says the answer is very simple. It doesn't say you won't go into Israel. It says you won't see the battle of the 31 kings. That is the battle of conquest. Initially, Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to be in Israel. He was supposed to lead the Jewish people into Israel. And then it was Joshua who was supposed to conquer the land. And Moses was not going to see the battles. That wasn't going to happen. But instead, later on, Moses was not even permitted to enter the land of Israel at all. That's one method. That's one way of answering this Another methodology, another way of answering it is that Moshe Rabbeinu was told here that he would not enter the land of Israel, but it didn't have to be the way. He still could have changed things. In fact, the Maskele David says this is similar to the notion that Hashem judges us on Rosh Hashanah, and then after judging us on Rosh Hashanah, what happens? Then Hashem says... You know, you still have a second chance. The ink is still wet till Yom Kippur. And then it's going to be sealed. That's it. Then the year is done. And then Hashem says, you know what? The, it hasn't yet been filed. So yeah, it's sealed, but not yet filed. So you can still break open the seal and you can still make changes. And that's until Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshmini Yatzeret. So this is multiple timelines. Moshe Rabbeinu, here's a decree against Moshe. He could have changed it. But unfortunately, then it was sealed. But it was delivered, and then there was no turning back. At any rate, however, however you, you go to explain this business, the point is very, very clear. Moshe Rabbeinu was not supposed to be complaining. And because he did complain, he's punished. So we see two very different approaches in the writings of our sages. Some, in some sources, like the Sifri or the Medr Seichel Tov, we're getting almost like a, a non emotional response. This is what's going to happen. You want to know, yeah, it's going to happen. We gloss over, if you will, the nature of Moshe Rabbeinu's request, which is more like a complaint, a demand for an explanation. The, Medrash, the Sifri doesn't really deal with that. It just says, Moshe Rabbeinu said, what's going on here? God said, don't worry, it's going to happen. The Medrash Seichel Tov says, 
here's why you need to see this. No, 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 you think they're suffering? I am going to exact payment. So God doesn't really deal with the question that Moshe Rabbeinu asked, only saying, in the end, I will deal with things. However, the Gemara very clearly says Moshe Rabbeinu complained. He was upset. He was really hurting. And God's response is, punish you for that. You never should have opened your mouth like that. Wow. So how do we understand the Chumash and Pshutosh Mikra? Which approach shall we take? Is it the Sifri? Is it the Seichel Tov? Or is it the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin? Well, let me begin by introducing you to Rashi. That's the Pshutosh Mikra. That's the straightforward explanation. Rashi says, here, harto almidotai. You question my ways. Loika Avraham, not like Avraham, Sha'amartilo that I told him, I told Abraham, Isaac would be the source of your progeny. He would be the one through whom a nation would be built. And immediately afterwards, And immediately afterwards, or not immediately, but I did eventually, 37 years later, after Isaac's birth, a I told him, Ha'alehu le'ola. Now bring him as an offering. Here you said, I'm going to give you a progeny. I'm going to give you a child. This child is going to be the source of the nation you build. And then God says, Bring him as an offering. It lends new meaning to the word, your toast now. He didn't question my ways, but you did. Therefore, you will see how you will see what happens to the Pharaoh. Not what happens. To the thirty, to the to the kings or the thirty-one kings of the seven nations, kishe avi'em la'aretz when I bring them into the land. So I'm going to bring them in the land. There'll be a battle of conquest. You're not going to be able to see those miracles. You'll only see the miracles of a seratamako, the ten plagues, and what happens to the pharaoh. Why do you think he'll send him the Pharaoh? Because he's a good guy. He's a monster. He's a horrific, terrible, immoral, mean-spirited, murderous individual. I'll pressure him. I'll beat him to a pulp. Guess what? Don't expect the Jewish people to be all peaches and cream. They're not going to behave so great. Some of the Jewish people will have to be driven out of the land. But the Pharaoh will. And in the end, Nobody's going to be left behind. All right. So Rashi clearly favors the approach of the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, which is also found in other Midrashim. He clearly favors this approach that Moshe Rabbeinu complained, 
and God punished him for it. He never really answers the question. He just says, you had no right to complain. Because you complained, now you're going to suffer. Which only adds more pain to our question. Somebody's in pain, frustrated, upset, unhappy, miserable, in agony, in mourning. And the answer is, don't you dare. Because if you open your mouth again, you'll suffer even more. Seriously? What kind of answer is this? How is that fair? What does it mean for, for you and for me? Now, our sages do point out that Avraham Avinu was judged in a, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, pardon me, judged in a much, 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 <laughs> did I say much? Much higher standard. HaKadosh Baruch Hu medaktikim tzadikim God is precise and exacting and demanding with the most righteous on a hair's breadth. So for Moshe Rabbeinu, having such a question is a problem. But for me and you, don't worry. It's not, you're not getting the book thrown at you if you expressed yourself in frustration. What does this teach us, though? What is the point? Very interestingly, the Kliyakar, who was an Acharon from a later time of Rashi, end of the time of the Rishonim, now we're going to the period of maybe the 16th century, so the Kliyakar has a very interesting way of framing this whole dialogue. And it begins with the word Atta, now. He said, what's now? Now! Now, now? And you couldn't do it before? Why is God responding by saying, now? By Yemir Hashem Omeisha, Atta, with an ayin, now. So the Kliyakar says like this. He says, this is the answer to Moshe. Why? What was Moshe's question? Love Mahariyota. Why are you bad to the Amazer? Why are you bad to these people? Says the Kliyakar Le Nisraim Mesha al Mashale Shalach Pari Yasisol. Meshabin was not upset that it didn't work, that he wasn't successful, that the Pharaoh didn't send the nation. He knew that was going to happen. God told him twice already that he will not. He's not going to let you go. That was not Moshe Rabbeinu's question. The question was not, why didn't they go? I know they're going to go. It's not my question. Ach, Nisraim, what was he upset about? What was Moshe been challenging? Was he confronting God over? Hamasha hate Allah, Mazel. Why are you so bad to these people? Why did it get worse? I knew it wasn't going to get better. But why did it get worse? I knew they weren't going to be redeemed. You told me it wasn't going to be a successful bid. But why did it get worse? Lepochus. If I'm being sent on mission impossible that will not yield results, at least at least I shouldn't cause damage. Why should I be the source of pain, suffering, and anguish? And we see, we see that Moshe Rabbeinu did cause tremendous damage, tremendous damage, directly responsible for the killing of babies. How much worse could it get? And Moshe Rabbeinu the second second-guess himself and doubt himself. He says, maybe I am the reason for this. Maybe it's because I'm such a loser. I can't speak straight. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm, I'm so inarticulate that the Pharaoh was angry. This is what you sent to me? This is who the Jewish people chose 
to talk to me? A man who can't speak a straight sentence without stammering? A stammering leader? You couldn't send me somebody who I could at least listen to and have a normal conversation with? He says, look at this, Pharaoh said. They make a fool out of me. It's like a terrible joke they say of a bunch of boys who were given a job to sell Bibles. And never one boy was a, a stammerer, a stutterer like Moshe Rabbeinu. And all the boys came back at night and one boy sold two Bibles, one boy sold five Bibles, one boy sold six. This kid sold all 25 Bibles in the box. And, and the counselor was amazed. He said, how'd you do it? He said in Nebuch, in his poor stuttering voice, he said, I knocked on the door, I said, you want to buy a Bible or I'm here to read it to you? Okay, it's an awful joke. I mean, you'll forgive me if you stutter. I didn't mean to offend you. But the point is, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I, I'm a stutterer. I can't speak. I, I stammer when I speak. The Pharaoh must have done this to torture the people just to get back at me. That's who you send? A person who can't speak clearly? That I have to sit and listen to him stammer and stutter? I'll do. And how did he get that? He says, you can actually see it even in the verses. What did Pharaoh say? He said, Why is this Moses and Aaron duet making trouble? Why are they stirring up problems with the nation? He should have said, Hey, you, Moses and Aaron, why are you stirring things up? Instead, he said, Why are Moshe and Aaron making a tumult? In other words, he's not upset about the stirring of, of, uh, and a yearning for freedom from slavery. He's upset that you, you Moses, is a joke or something? You came? You are speaking? And Moses feels terrible. What, what do we do? He says, he says, if you sent Moses, who can't carry out anything, who can't, this is not his vocation. He was not going to get a job as a, a radio announcer or a, as a TV anchor person, not Moses. He couldn't speak. <laughs> Parenthetically, you know, there was a great Rishon, his name is the Ran. And the Ran asks a question in one of his sermons, one of his drushas. He says, why did God choose a person who was inarticulate, a person who stuttered, to give the Torah? And he says, if Moshe Rabbeinu would have been articulate, if Moshe Rabbeinu would have been an orator, People would say, yeah, sure, they believed him. He was an orator. He was so articulate. He could have sold ice to none of it. I mean, this, it was just, he was just an amazing speaker. And they could question the veracity of Moshe's words. So Moshe Rabbeinu was a terrible speaker. And there could be only one reason why the people would listen to Moshe Rabbeinu. It wasn't because of his speaking abilities. That, says Iran, is why God chose a person who stutters. And one could perhaps argue that that's why God chose a person who stutters to the Pharaoh. So that it would be an act of God, not an effective negotiator who managed to get the Pharaoh to agree. At any rate, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't know any of this right now. And he feels deeply distressed as he has been the source of suffering. So what does God answer him? So Hashem's response is, Atta, now you'll see. 
Kriyaka says something very interesting. He says, you know, Kachiyamida, this is, this is the way things go. This is the nature of things. It's the measure of things. Bechol yoyim, every day, just before the morning star, before Venus becomes very bright, the night is darkest before day breaks. And then, and then, then day breaks. V'chein, he says also, rov most sick people, mortally ill people, somoch l'mitatam, very close to their passing, they find strength, v'yoshem, they sit up in bed, and they might even mavakshem lechol, they might ask to eat something, and then, and then they die. I just had a story recently in this community, a person was on death watch for several days, in the very last moment, he opened his eyes, Engage his children, and then he went. When is the coldest time of the day? The coldest time is just before the sun rises. There's no lingering heat from yesterday left. And then the sun comes out, and slowly the temperature begins to rise. In other words, says the Kliyakar, this is after all nature. Whole dover TV. Any, it's the nature of anything that feels threatened. When it feels threatened, it responds with force. You know, like they say, don't corner a cat. So it's even a biological thing. It's not only a conscious decision or a survival instinct. Biologically speaking, the biology of each thing is that when it senses whatever level of consciousness it has, threat, it's being threatened, it forces itself forward. It, there's a, there's a, a rush of proverbial adrenaline. It gets very, very strong. He said the same thing with the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh felt the jig was up. He felt this is the real deal. On the contrary, if Moses would have been charismatic, if Moses would have been articulate, he would have thought, eh, this guy sweet-talked his way in here. When he realized a person who can't put two words together without stuttering showed up, he said, this is not something people thought of. Something deeper is going on here. And the Pharaoh knew, and therefore the Pharaoh lashed out. And that's why he gave the Jewish people such a difficult time. Hashem said to Moshe, relax, you wonder why things got worse? That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Zman ha Now the time of redemption has arrived. And everything the Pharaoh's doing is going to be nullified. Everything he said is going to be cast aside. And that's why he's trying. He knows it. He knows that. He's asserting his authority one last time. He's toast. Finished. That's the meaning. Now you'll see. You asked why is he bad? I'll show you why. Why do things get worse? That's how it is. Because now it's time for them to come out. And the Kliyaka, now, I just want to say, up until now, the Kliyaka has done for us. It's a very, very elegant explanation of the response to Moses. He's not like glossing over it like in the Medrash Seichel Tov or like in the Sifri. But at the same time, according to the words of, of the Kliyaka, Moses is not getting punished here. The Kliyaka does not lean on the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin. He clearly seems to be following the approach of the Sifri. 
And he elegantly explains what God is saying. He says, you want to know why it got worse? Here's why it got worse. It gets worse before it gets better. It's at the end. At the end of its dying throes, there's a, a gathering of strength, full attack, and then these forces will be put down forever. Which doesn't really help us in the crisis of faith. I mean, it's a response in a very, very specific way to Moses. It's kind of funny to talk about the nature of things when you're in the business of miracles and amazing wonders. But at any rate, that's what the Kliyakar says. And then he says, another way to understand the business of now, he says, is that initially the decree of slavery was supposed to be four centuries long. But they're only 210 years into their tenure in Egypt. So what God does is he says he ratchets up the pressure. And in a very short amount of time, he gives so much suffering to the Jewish people that it's as if they experience decades of suffering within hours. Seeing babies murdered in such a brutal way accelerated the process of bondage and slavery and brought us immediately to the threshold of redemption. And that's the Atta. This is a theological response to human suffering. We may not understand it, but in the end it's for our good. Hashem is doing something for us that we couldn't, couldn't possibly have happened otherwise. We may not understand it, but in the end it's for our good. It's a theological answer. It's a theological answer that's cradled by faith, because you have to believe in Hashem, and you have to believe everything Hashem does is for the good. But philosophically speaking, you can wrap your head around this idea that you can't understand it, but nonetheless, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing what's good for us. Similar to the notion that the Altarebbe describes in Tanya in chapter 27, that the one who Hashem loves is going to be chastised, and the punishment for the suffering, the travail, and the toils of this world actually help cleanse and heal the soul and accelerate the process of its perfection. Okay. Clearly the Kliyakar does not see these verses in the view, in the prism of the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin. But Rashi does. And I was thinking, you know, why? I was like kind of trying to figure out why, why did Rashi choose to give the answer he gave and not speak about the answer of the Kliyakar. And I think that on, on one level, it's... It's very easy to understand why Rashi doesn't choose the Kliyakar's approach. Because if you think about it, the words that Moshe Rabbeinu said, words of pain, are not really assaged by, well, that's the nature of things. You're God. You're sending me here to make miracles. So that's your answer? Why are babies being killed? Well, you know, it's the nature of things. Really? So that's why babies have to be murdered? That's why people have to suffer such anguish because it's the nature of things? Didn't you just tell me we're going to be having miracles and amazing wonders and that there's unbelievable things going to unfold, but it has to follow the nature of things? When you frame it in its larger sense, it just, just doesn't seem to add up. It's a beautiful homily. But it can't explain the verses in a straightforward way. So there's something very strange about this Rashi. 
although what Rashi says is textbook, it's the Gemara of Masechet Sanhedrin, something very strange about the Rashi, because if you were listening to me when I read the Rashi, Rashi spoke about the Akedah. Rashi spoke about the binding of Isaac. The notion that Abraham was promised a child who would build a nation and then told to snuff out the life and burn the child. And yet, when we read the Gemara in Sanhedrin, it talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it speaks about the inheritance of the land of Israel. Nowhere in the writing of our sages is the Akedah even mentioned. That's very hard to understand. As the Rebbe points out in a footnote in the Sikha, in the edited talk in the Kutasichas in the 16th volume on Parshas Vaira, the Rebbe points out in a footnote that this narrative that Rashi introduces in the end of Parsha Shmos is a dogma zoi me'avram loy huvo b'maymoridazal. It's not brought in the Gemara, it's not brought in the Medrash Tanchuma or the Medrash Rabbah. It's not. So why did Rashi do that? Why did he take the example of Avram Avinu with the Akedah when that's not even what our sages said? And interestingly enough, in Parshas Va'era, Rashi does repeat the words of the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin in their totality. And he goes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he talks about the very details, the paradigms that the Gemara enumerates and lists. Why did Rashi choose to explain something different here? So the Rebbe says this. The real question that Moshe Rabbeinu had was not why are the people suffering. Moshe Rabbeinu knew he couldn't understand why the people are suffering. In fact, he already expressed himself that way when he said to God, I will come to the people, I will bring them a message from God, and they will say, eh, what's his name? How is Moses so sure they're going to ask his name? And in a word, the Rebbe explains that the name is the way we relate to somebody. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm going to come to the people and say, there is a God who is kind and benevolent, loving and generous, omnipotent and all-powerful, and he knows about you, and he is going to redeem you. And the people will say, really, what do you call a God like that? What name should I call him? Yeah, the babies are thrown in the river, never seen again, and other babies are being butchered. The pharaohs bathing in their blood on a daily basis. Endless suffering, endless anguish, endless pain. Really, what's the name of that God? What do I call him? What's God's answer? God's answer is Eke. Eye, I'm with him. God doesn't say, I can't help. We don't know why God does what he does but we do take comfort in the fact that we are not alone, that God is with us, and that God proverbially suffers with us, even though, as it says, in all of the pain of our exile, God is in pain. Even though God, of course, is in charge, he's the boss, he can do what he wants. Okay, so we have something we can't understand, but I'm never alone. Hashem is always with me. And that's a source of comfort. 
So the Rebbe says, when it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu's question, the real question here is not simply, why God have you mistreated your people? is followed with the real thrust of Moshe's upset, a real thrust of his hurt. Why did you send me? Why did I have to be the one through whom bad things would happen? That Moshe Rabbeinu said he can't understand. If God wants to mistreat the people for God's reasons, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I don't understand it. I can't understand it. What do you have to send me for? Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I told Avraham, I'm going to give you a son who's going to build a nation. Then I told him, now you go and kill that son. Avraham should say, God, if you didn't want to give me a nation, don't give me a child. What was the point of giving me a child, letting me raise him, grooming him for his future role as the progenitor of the Jewish people, and now you kill him with your own hands? What's the point? If God doesn't want to give Abraham children, he won't give him children. As the Rebbe points out in a footnote on the next page, he says, you cannot compare the pain that a person has for not having children to the pain that a person has for being promised that I'll have a child so he can build a family and future progeny, and then he has to not only watch the child die before he's brought children into the world, but he has to be the one to kill him himself. What'd you tell me that for, God? So why'd you tell me be I understand you want a sacrifice. I don't understand it. I'll do what you want. But what'd you torment me for? What'd you make me crazy for? That's the thing that's bothering Baisha. Well, what's the response? The response is that some questions are not supposed to be asked and they're not supposed to be understood. It's not in our purview to make sense out of that. Hashem's answer to Moshe Rabbeinu was not a logical answer. He didn't say, well, you need to understand that's the nature of things. Rashi brings a different example than sages to emphasize the question of Moshe here was, so why'd you send me for? Why do I have to be the one to inflict the pain? Why do I have to be the one to canalize the suffering? And Hashem said to Moshe, Avram didn't ask that question. Now there are many beautiful sifras where the Rebbe explains the uniqueness of Moshe Rabbeinu and why he did ask questions, or why the patriarchs didn't, that they served Hashem with their emotions. And Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to serve Hashem with his mind and supposed to understand things. And that the ultimate answer is that when the Torah is given, one can serve God with their mind and still not question. It's all, it's all true. It's all true. And there's even another sikh where the Rebbe says Moshe Rabbeinu himself didn't question, but Moshe Rabbeinu, he was questioning for you and for me. He was questioning, he said, the people have to be able to relate to this. How will the people relate to it? And what's the answer that Hashem gives? A very important answer, my dear friends. When you have a crisis of faith, don't look for an answer. Some things have to just be accepted. To try to rationalize is the mistake that Harold Kushner made. It's a bad idea. It's not the Torah way. I once came to a shiva house where somebody had suffered the loss of a loved one in a very tragic way. 
And they said to me, I'm trying to rationalize it. I, I, I still can't forgive God, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm, gonna, I'm soon going to make sense out of this. And I said, I said to her very sadly, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you're supposed to do that. I don't think we're supposed to make sense out of anything. You hear people offering rationale for suffering. They want to explain the Holocaust to you. It's not, it's not for us to do. It's not for us to try to understand the inexplicable. What's in our purview is to bow our heads in submission and accept the will of Hashem. To be matzdik esadim. That's how we deal with a crisis of faith. Because to try to rationalize or understand that which can't be understood is like pegging a round hole with a square peg. This is an emotional hurt. It's raw and it's painful. And the pain is understood. But it still doesn't give us the right to question God. And it still shouldn't lead us to doubt the justice of Hashem. It's not a satisfying answer. But it's the only answer. I'll finish with this. Years ago, I was in Miami. And I was in the hardware store. There was this little yid in front of me. Right on Harding and Bell Harbor, on Harding Avenue. And I noticed that the name on his card was Eli Weisel. Now, I had never met Eli Weisel before. And from the pictures, you think he's 10 feet tall, you know. Like, but he was a short yidalu. I looked at the card, I was like, but really? And I left my purchase in the store. I, didn't, I came back later to buy it. I ran outside after. I said, Mr. Wiesel, I figured the chances are too stunning. Here's an old man with the name Ellie Wiesel, and it's not Ellie Wiesel, it's got to be Wiesel. And he turned around to me and he says, what? <laughs> and I said, um, I just, I just want to tell you that it, you, you, you've made such an incredible impact on me and countless others and thank you on behalf of the Jewish people you're a, you're a hero for us and whatever I just I thanked him because he's such an was such an inspiration and I said when I was a little boy living in Philadelphia on KNX radio there was once an interview with Elie Wiesel I don't remember why I don't remember why I was listening but I was and and um, on KNX radio they ask Elie Wiesel if he believes in God and, or, and he said, yes, he does believe in God. And he said, how could you believe in God after the Holocaust? And at this point, Elie Wiesel finishes the story for me. <laughs> and he begins to tell me what I had heard all those years earlier as a little boy in Philadelphia. It was, like, it was chilling because it was like the same exact words, but now I'm talking to Elie Wiesel. And he says to me, he says to me, just as he had said to the interviewer, he says, I asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe this very question. I asked, how can you believe in God after the Holocaust? And the Rebbe said, how can you not believe in God after the Holocaust? And Elie Wiesel's comment was, if the Rebbe was answering my question, I do not accept it. I cannot accept it. But if the Rebbe was responding to my question 
with another question, I accept it, and it is the only answer. We don't know why people suffer. We don't know why people have so much pain. We don't know. We're not capable of knowing, nor should we seek the answer. But not believing in God is definitely not the answer, and it's not the solution. And with our faith, we can fortify ourselves. And with our faith, we can get through the final crises that we might be experiencing. And hopefully, my dear friends, strengthening our faith and conviction in Hashem and placing our trust, our betochen in Hashem, will spirit us through these final dark moments of Golos and will finally enable the lifting of the curtain and the revelation of a whole new reality, a time in which all the answers will be apparent, a time in which all questions will fade away, a time in which only goodness and only Hashem's kindness will be known by us all. That's the coming of Mashiach, the Meherah, will be Amenu. Amen. Thanks so much for joining today. If you aren't yet subscribed, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Please subscribe and don't forget to enable notifications. Thank you.